The Buddha codified his realization in the teachings on the Four Noble Truths. And the Four Noble Truths that the Buddha articulated say that the first Noble Truth is the truth of Dukkha. That there is pain, suffering, vulnerability, oppressiveness, insecurity in life. The second noble truth is that the cause of that dukkha is craving or attachment. He did say that there was a third noble truth in that there is an end to all of that dukkha. And the fourth noble truth is the path to be developed to realize the end of that dukkha. And the noble eightfold path, the fourth noble truth, is essentially three trainings. There is the training in sila or morality by undertaking the precepts. We purify our speech and behavior so that we do not act out transgressive defilements, so we don't cause harm to others. And a result of that is that we get to live with more harmonious relationships between us. But even if we do speak and act very carefully, not harming others by what we do or say, our minds can still drive us crazy and cause us a tremendous amount of torment. And so he offered the second training, which is a training in samadhi or concentration, what we've been doing here. And essentially, samadhi training is the development of mindfulness or moment-to-moment awareness in order to purify the mind temporarily of obsessive defilements. You know, the obsessing that the mind you've seen. (laughs) And to the extent that we can develop uncontinuity of mindfulness, we temporarily subdue those obsessive defilements and that purifies the mind and gives us a temporary but not insignificant relief from some dukkha and the happiness of being secluded from the torments. But as we know, development of concentration and the purity of the mind is very dependent on uh, appropriate conditions like being in retreat with a lot of support and 24-7 to practice it. And life's just not like that. And so the Buddha offered a third training, which is more subtle and more powerful for purifying our understanding. And this is through the development of wisdom by developing 
insight. When successful, this practice opens the doorway to what the Buddha called the highest happiness of peace. So the Buddha laid out a very clear path to be developed to obtain momentary relief from the defilements, a temporary but enduring uh, relief from the defilements, and a permanent uprooting of the source of suffering through Vipassana practice. On this retreat, we've been practicing, for the most part, of course, purifying our speech and behavior by living according to the precepts. That's nice. And developing the continuity of mindfulness that leads to concentration, giving you all at least a taste for some periods of time in a sitting each day, some period of time when you weren't obsessed with defilements, you weren't just tormented. And you can see that it's a challenge to um, establish that continuity of awareness in the mind. But nevertheless, even after just a week, you can see the benefit. The development of this concentration, as was mentioned earlier in the retreat, is dependent on the cultivation of what are called the five jhanic or concentrative factors of mind, connecting and sustaining the attention on the object which, when successful, gives rise to joy or delight in the mind, which, when mature, smooths out to sukha or happy comfort of mind and body and one-pointedness or concentration itself. These five factors, as was pointed out earlier, temporarily overcome and suppress the five hindrances. If we were to develop this concentration more assiduously, more continuously, with more uh, success, we could, uh, if successful, uh, achieve some very deep and profound exalted states of mind called the jhanas or absorptions. And while the Buddha praised those who developed these deep absorptions through concentration of mind, and many people at the time of the Buddha had already practiced or were practicing them, he realized that they really didn't finish the job. And that, as I mentioned, a subtler but more powerful, really, practice was needed in order to uproot, not just to temporarily keep at bay, but to uproot the source of the defilements from the mind. And this is through the development of wisdom, vipassana knowledge or vipassana insight. And vipassana means insight, but it means a particular kind of insight. It's the insight which is a 
personally experienced or empirical realization and understanding of what are known as the three characteristics. The three universal characteristics of all phenomena are that they are impermanent. That they are unreliable. They're either painful, they're unstable, they're oppressive, they're unreliable as a basis for our happiness. And third, that they are ephemeral, insubstantial, conditioned. And the practice of vipassana is to see these understandings for yourself. The understandings of the impermanence, the unsatisfactoriness, and the conditionality of all things, all experience, all conditioned experience. So what is the relationship? And this is a much debated uh, topic. What's the relationship between the jhanic absorptions, deep tranquility, and the unfolding of the vipassana insights? Tonight I want to speak about what are called the vipassana jhanas. What's that mean? when the development of the five factors, the five concentration factors, are sufficient to attain the first jhana, if one was doing Vipassana practice and they were developed that far, you would reach what we call the first Vipassana jhana, which is an understanding of the three characteristics. If you practice further and you develop the five factors, or now the three factors, because two fall away, sufficient to attain second absorption, second jhana, but if you were practicing Vipassana, you would attain an understanding of the three characteristics that was much more refined. And it goes this way until fourth jhana, or fourth Vipassana jhana, which is... Um, a very insightful understanding into the three characteristics and is the doorway through which one enters or accesses the unconditioned or Nibbana. So I want to talk about the path of Vipassana practice and correlate it to the development of the concentrative factors or the Vipassana jhanas. When we begin a practice like this, all of us have, well, just a very difficult time trying to be mindful. And while the instructions are really simple, it is definitely not easy. And so whether we choose a primary object like the breath or we open to choiceless objects, whatever calls our attention, it is just really difficult. It's challenging to establish any continuity to our awareness. And in the beginning of practice, there really is no distinction between 
whether you're doing concentration practice or vipassana practice. We're just trying to develop mindfulness sufficient to put aside the hindrances temporarily. To do this, of course, we have to have some aspiration, we have to have some strong intention, we have to arouse a lot of energy, uh, purify our attention, and just work diligently to connect and sustain over and over and over again, trying to be aware. It's a struggle. And for many of us, it's not clear that we're making any progress. There may be some high points. We get occasional glimpses of, oh, it's tranquil, it's clear, it's, it's a relief, we can relax. But, you know, the next sitting is downhill from there. <laughs> and this is universal. This is just universal. The incessant stream of habitual thoughts judging and evaluating and self-criticism and anger and irritation and frustration and disappointment is just relentless and we see it more clearly. <laughs> Not only that, it's really painful to sit still for very long. Even if you sit in the most ergonomically designed chair, if you sit still and pay attention like you are doing here, the body is going to hurt. That's just the nature of the body. And so we're up against our rampant mind, our painful body, and, a, well, a lack of faith or confidence that we can even do it. And we're not sure that it's that valuable anyway. <laughs> is there any reason, is, is there any wonder that it takes us so long to get anywhere? During this period of time, of course, is just an extensive personal history review where all of the unfinished... <laughs> It's a good thing we can laugh about it now because, <laughs> you know, at the time, it's not, so, not a laughable matter. It's really painful. But nevertheless, you know, mindfulness does this thorough personal history review, digging up all the skeletons in your closet, in the cellar, in the attic, anything that has ever been left undone, unsaid, unfinished, painful, and you get to look at it again. This is not a waste of time. This has to be done in order to come to understand who we are, how we are, how we got this way. And so it opens up a whole realm of the personality and how the personality happened to get where it is. And it's endlessly fascinating. And so we spend just a tremendous amount of time psychologizing ourselves, or analyzing ourselves, or you know, figuring out why and how we are the way we are. And this too is just, well, I think I've never met someone who doesn't do that in practice. It's just, it's pretty universal. And it takes a tremendous amount of encouragement to uh, bear with it, to keep going, and in the process, gradually, we all learn to internalize the instructions and remind ourselves what to do. Now, eventually, we do begin to put aside the hindrances and experience just the activity of mind. And what we see then is we have a choice. There is this reality 
There is this one reality that we live, but there's two ways of viewing it. There is the relative, consensual, conventional view of reality, which says, in this situation, here is a teacher sitting up front, a foot higher than everybody else, speaking to a room full of students on retreat at Spirit Rock, California, in the year 2011. That's the conventional view of this reality. And we all agree with it, hopefully. If you don't, you're in trouble. (laughs) But actually, when you close your eyes and you pay attention to your direct and immediate experience, there's no teacher, there's no student, there's no spirit rock, there's no time, there's no retreat. There's just thoughts, feelings, moods, sensations, plans, memories, and imaginations about the future. That's the direct and immediate experience of our mind taking in and experiencing the way it is. This is significant. If you follow the conventional view of reality in your practice, you will develop concentration. If you practice and connect with and realize and are mindful of the experiential view of reality, you'll develop insight. (laughs) If you're mindful of the conventional reality and the events in conventional reality, you can develop understanding and loving-kindness and other, uh, a lot of practices, but basically you'll be developing concentration. It is only if you are able to develop mindfulness of the experiential reality will you be able to develop insight. But insight and the development of wisdom is the practice that removes the impurities to our understanding. We have wrong understanding in the mind. And so we need to practice in such a way as to uproot those wrong beliefs from the mind. When Sariputta, one of the Buddha's noble disciples, was asked what conditions are necessary for the development of the right view or the skillful view of experience, he said there are two. There are two conditions. The first is, you have to hear what the right view is from someone else. And second, you have to practice with wise attention. So what the Buddha said is, you have to hear what the right way of understanding your experience is and practice in order to realize it. What we do here in all of the instruction, in all of the Dharma talks, in all of our one-on-one conversations is to try to give you the right view. So that when you practice, you can begin to confirm it for yourself. It is said 
that samadhi or concentration practices bring you close to sukha, that happy comfort of peace, and that happy comfort of mind and body. And that vipassana practice brings you close to dukkha, which is not sukha. <laughs> when I was in Burma practicing uh, in the monastery, I was doing Vipassana practice, and then in 1988 there was a huge political uprising, much like what's going on in the Middle East now, where the whole, the whole country went on strike, the dictator stepped down, everybody thought they were going to get democracy, and it was just a tremendously high time in Burma. And then as things unfolded at that point, one night, of course, the military reasserted control a few thousand people disappeared and groupings of more than two or three people together were no longer allowed and the, the joy was over. And I was trying to do Vipassana practice in the monastery and it was a very, very tense and very unpleasant situation in Burma at the time. And it was just so painful to stay aware of what was going on because you could hear, you could hear the, the shooting and the bombs and it was, the, the monastery was the safest place to be, but it sometimes didn't feel that safe. And so I realized that I couldn't do Vipassana. It was just too painful to know what was going on and to see my own reactions, being so angry and fearful and, you know, disgusted and resentful. And so I decided to do loving kindness a concentration practice to calm my mind down and to try to develop some openness and connection with what was going on. So I was practicing for a few weeks. I'd already, been, I'd already learned this practice and I'd been practicing for a few weeks and one, time, one day my, my teacher Upandita said to me, he says, um, uh, are you practicing metta for the generals that took over the country? And I said, no, why? You're gonna be why would I want to do that? You know, and just my indignant, you know, aversive, you know, self-righteous self. And he said, they want to be happy. But due to their, you know, ignorance and just not knowing they're doing what will make them and others unhappy, but they really want to be happy. Why can't I wish it for them? And I did, I tried. And it was took some effort, it took a while, before I could see them independent of their actions and know that I could wish them happiness, even though I didn't condone the way that they were trying to be happy. So I could see that in situations where opening to one's own internal life is just so painful, so difficult, it is possible to develop deep, tranquility and loving-kindness through concentration practice. And this is the value of developing concentration. So, or having the ability to develop concentration. It gives us a relief valve when we're practicing vipassana and we come face to face with overwhelming dukkha. Whether it's physical pain or mental pain, emotional pain, When it's overwhelming and you can no longer practice, it's good to have a relief valve. And that's what 
concentration practice provides to us. So it is an invaluable tool in the path of awakening to develop concentration. as we continue to practice awareness using our chosen object, the breath in this case. We have a choice. And you've all noticed this choice in this retreat. We can pay attention to the breath knowing that we're breathing in and breathing out and just keep the knowing in our mind while we're doing everything else. Sitting, walking, yogi job, whatever it is. And you can keep it in the foreground, you know, 60-40 we talked about, 60% breath, 40% everything else. That would be to develop concentration. If you want to develop insight, you have to actually feel the sequence of sensations in each breath and each step and each movement of the arms and hands and body and each time you hear and each time you have a thought and each time you have an emotional response to anything. All of these need to be recognized, taken note of, observed, felt, registered to develop insight. Well, you can see that the practice of concentration, of just generally being aware of breathing in and breathing out, is quite different than paying attention to the breath in order to develop insight. And you all have kind of toyed with this either during the retreat or today when we switched you to Vipassana practice. What happens in insight practice if we develop continuity of mindfulness is we begin to understand something, the foundation of insight. And that is, in every moment, something arises and it's being known. It sounds so simple, it's so obvious, and it's so difficult to get. Just something arises in every moment, and it's being known. Something arises, it's being known. Something arises, being known. Our habitual conditioning is something arises, we like it or dislike it. And we push it away or we grab onto it without hardly recognizing that it's just something being known. And so it really takes teasing apart our emotional reaction, conditioned, deeply conditioned, to the events of our life. And just to see that it is just something arising due to causes and conditions mostly outside of our control. And it's just being known. This is the first Well, it's a foundational understanding for the development of insight. That in itself is not insight. It's got nothing to do with impermanence, dukkha, and uh, the insubstantiality. But it is the foundation upon which all the insights arise. A second knowledge that is important, essential to cultivate or to recognize in the development of the path towards insight is the understanding that 
what arises in each moment is due to causes and conditions. It's not accidental. It's not a mistake. It's not an independent thing. It's because of causes and conditions that things arise. So all of our experience in the body, in the mind, it arises due to causes and conditions. We can see this clearly when we take note of or notice our intentions in the mind. The impulse moment when we're about to do something and we see that, you know, you sit down, after 15 minutes your body begins to ache and you have this debate go on in your mind. Should I move now or later? (laughs) And the body doesn't move as long as you're noticing that there's a question in your mind. Should I, shouldn't I, will I, won't I, you know, and, you know, the determination to be a good yogi arises in the mind, determination is a mental factor, arises in the mind, you say, no, sit still, I'm going to stay right here, I'm going to endure with this one. Then anger arises and says, yeah, but I hate this pain, this is so uncomfortable, I want to get, desire arises and says, I want to get away from this. Compassion arises and says, oh, be nice to yourself, move now, you don't have to sit up, that thing. And, right? And so what we see and what we really learn is different states of mind just arise spontaneously conditioned by this discomfort in the body. You don't have discomfort in the body. You never think about moving. Right? Okay. Condition, the discomfort in the body gives rise to these conditions, these thoughts. And depending on whether you see them or not, the desire, the compassion, the aversion, the the resoluteness, whatever, you'll sit there and you'll either move or not. But at some point, you move. So the question has to arise, who moved? Well, if you ask that in a general way, who moved? Well, I moved. But when you're practicing Vipassana, you look and you see, what was the mental state that conditioned the intention to move? Because that mental state of aversion or desire or whatever it was conditioned the impulse to move and the moving took place. And of course the relief is immediate. You don't have to do anything about that. If you move the body, relief comes. And you see this cause-effect relationship. This begins to show you how insubstantial your sense of self really is. You know, this package of mind-body stuff is just unfolding due to causes and conditions and a cause-effect relationship moment to moment to moment to moment. Okay. So now we've got some continuity of mindfulness, knowing that just things arise and are being known, and the things that arise are due to causes and conditions that aren't under my immediate control. Now you're ready to begin practicing Vipassana. Because what you see is that everything that arises doesn't last very long. Even pain. If you really look at the pain in the body when it arises, it arises and you think my knee is killing me, you look at it and it's just this bubbling cauldron of pixels of discomfort pain and ache and heat and stretch and, and pressure and, and you see 
I know you have a knee problem now. Maybe you don't see it that way. But it is. <laughs> it is. It's just this, there's no knee. There's just this bubbling cauldron of pixels of discomfort. Unpleasant. And it's all impermanent. And everything else that we see is impermanent. And we begin to see this clearly. Everything that arises is just passing away. It arises, passes away. And not only that, it's pretty unpleasant. <laughs> a lot of what we experience initially in practice is unpleasant physical, unpleasant mental, unpleasant emotional stuff. Right? I'm not the only one, right? <laughs> There's just a tremendous amount of um, accumulated files on our hard drive. And it's just there for the viewing when we start paying attention. And just random files out of the mind just come up for review. All kinds of personal history, all kinds of plans, all kinds of judgments, fears, joys, sorrows, explanations, dharmaizing, all kinds of stuff. Entangling us in more hindrances. But eventually we begin to understand the cause-effect relationship and we begin to see that everything is impermanent. This is equivalent to the first jhana. Connecting and sustaining are steady. The joy of the mind knowing what it knows, the mind enjoying the knowing in each moment is there. And some, I won't say comfort of mind and body, but certainly one point in this in that you see moment to moment what is going on. So this is the equivalent of first jhana. Now, if you were practicing loving-kindness and you attained first jhana or any of the other concentration practices, then you'd, be, you'd have some you know, exalted feeling and some clarity and some kind of automaticness. Well, there's an automatic awareness, too, in the first vipassana jhana. Because you can't stop yourself from seeing the incessant passing away of everything that you look at. Of course, it's painful. It's very destabilizing. It's hard to feel confident about your practice. In fact, it's so challenging to our ordinary view of reality. Remember, conventional view of reality is trying to assert itself. It's trying to take over your mind consistently. And you're trying to see through the conventional view to the way things really are experienced. It is so difficult... We call this the first appearance of the rolling up the mat stage of practice. This is where we say, this is too hard. I'm going to roll up the mat and go home. And it's really, it's, it's a challenge. And some of you saw this, to this, this retreat. It's like, this is too hard. This is just too painful. It's too, I can't do it. It's too frustrating. It's, I'm just not good at it, and I might as well go home. We all get to that place at some point in time. But if we keep persisting, and we keep trying, we just keep looking, eventually we will begin to stabilize our understanding that everything is arising. 
and passing away. And we see that the, we see the dukkha characteristic. Things are really painful, physical and mental pain. Things are very unstable. We see that. Things arise that we don't even want to arise. And things we do want to arise, we can't control them. They're outside of our personal control. We see how conditional everything is. Now this is an understanding that comes from being with our experience. Now you've all seen this. But when you see it in your own experience, moment after moment, you can't deny it, you can't get away from it. It's just impressing this knowledge on you. All you can do is let go. Just let go. Let go of your fantasies about yourself, let go of your expectations, let go of your disappointment, let go of your fears. Just let go of everything that you see you're hanging on to because it's too painful to hold on. But in time, we will grow in our understanding and our belief, our acceptance really, that everything that arises passes away quickly. Things are either painful or they're unstable and not a basis for secure happiness. And things are not under our immediate control. This is the anatta characteristic. It is so obvious. Would you do that? Would you do that work? Would you do that practice? Would you open to that understanding of things if you didn't have encouragement? If you didn't have someone saying, this is a good thing to do. We wouldn't. We would think that's a stupid thing to do. You know, that is just ridiculous. Why don't I just do metta, get close to sukha, hang out in bliss? Right? That's why we need to hear the teachings over and over and over again. Metta is great. Concentration is wonderful. Insight is also necessary. You know, it said that the first noble truth of dukkha the painfulness, the insecurity, the vulnerability that we feel, is to be investigated and understood. It's to be investigated and understood. Our life, the conditioning of our life is to avoid it, to deny it, to minimize it, to do everything we can to escape, to get away from seeing dukkha. And so we really need to look hard, consistently, perseveringly, penetratingly at our experience in order to discover dukkha. Again, why would you bother doing that? If you weren't encouraged, if you weren't instructed, if you weren't guided, we would just say, it's not worth it. It's going in the wrong direction. But it's not. It is going in the right direction because if this dukkha is caused by craving and holding on, as the Buddha articulated, how can we let go of what we don't know we're holding on to? We cannot. We need to see what we're holding on to in order to be able to let go. And when we see that we are holding on, we will see the dukkha. We will see the suffering, we'll see the pain, we'll see the insecurity, we'll see the vulnerability of that. We'll feel it. But when we feel it, then we recognize this is no way to live. And we can learn to let go. And that's the path of 
the Vipassana. The second um, Vipassana jhana is when the first two factors of connecting and sustaining are so strong, so powerful, you don't have to, they become subtle, they they fall away, we say they fall away, actually they become so automatic that you don't have to do anything about it. And so what you notice most in the second jhana is the joy, the thrilling, chilling, uplifting, exciting joy, and the bliss of everything is okay, and the one-pointedness, the extreme stability of mind that just stays where it's put in each moment. Now, if you're practicing absorption jhana, second jhana is delightful. It's just full of spiritual goodies, and they're, they're really enjoyable. You can really hang out there for a long time and just indulge in it. When you're doing Vipassana practice and those factors of mind are aroused and the connecting and sustaining, the momentum of your mindfulness is pretty steady. You don't have to work at connecting with the object and sustaining your attention on it. The mind is doing its job unhindered. It takes great delight. However, the mind takes great delight in knowing anything, whether it's painful or pleasant. And when you're practicing Vipassana, it's not pleasant. And so the mind can take great delight in very pain, knowing very painful experiences in exquisite detail. <laughs> and it sounds oxymoronic. It sounds kind of like paradoxical. But you know, it's like a deep tissue massage. You know, somebody takes, they jams their thumb into your biggest knots in the back and the face, whatever. And it's excruciatingly painful and really pleasant <laughs> at the same time. Yeah? Well, Vipassana is like that. When, when the factors are aroused to excess uh, second vipassana jhana, the momentum of the mindfulness is, is just, you can't keep up with it. The, the, the objects that are arising are arising so fast that you can't name them. Before, we might be able to say, you know, breathing in, breathing out, hearing sounds, thinking, sadness. Now, at this stage, they are so fast. The mind is fast. The mind is able to keep up with very speedy appearances. And you see them. You see them perfectly clearly. You take them in in their full import. And try not to have a reaction to them. Because if you have a reaction, of course, then the whole process stops and you're kind of bogged down in, you know, fear or anger or frustration or disappointment and you got to deal with that. Put that aside before you get the momentum back up to see things arising and passing away incessantly. Well, when I first went to Burma, I was practicing with Sayadaw Upandita and I was uh, a poor student. I mean, I was a bad student. Uh, I'd been practicing doing retreats in the West for eight years. And I was not very successful. I was a really slow learner. But when I went to Burma, I was really gung-ho. And after a couple of weeks of practice, 
I could see each day it was getting a little better, a little better, a little more continuous, a little more stillness in the mind and body and a little more clear. And then one day I got up and I started to practice and I couldn't, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't be mindful for one second. I couldn't remember from one second to the next what I was supposed to do. I couldn't, nothing. It was just a chaotic mess in my mind. And I thought, oh my God, what happened? I must have, I must have eaten something wrong. I, I didn't know what. I was just like, I was in a frantic mess because every day I had to go report to Upandit at 2 o'clock. <laughs> so at 2 o'clock I said, well, I've got to go see him. It's like, well, usually I'd go to the door, walk in, walk across the floor, do my bows, give him a report of what was going on. He'd, he'd get translated, he'd talk to the translator and I'd get a little instruction, which was usually, please continue. <laughs> But this time, I was in such a frantic, frenetic wreck, mess, I went to the door and I just stuck my head in and said, <clears throat> I, don't, I don't think I'll report today. <laughs> Normally, Upandita's working on his Dharma talk for the night, but he heard that and he goes, huh? Yeah. He said, what's going on? I said, ah. <laughs> it's not so good. He says, oh, come in, come in, come in. You've got to tell me what's going on. So I went in and I felt so ashamed and so bad about myself. I was so critical. It's like my practice had gone to pieces. It was just overnight. I don't know how it happened. So I told him, and I said, I don't know what to say. It's just, it's so bad. It's not. He said, well, just say whatever you think. Whatever's going on. So I told him what, I, what was going on. I couldn't be mindful. I couldn't remember to be mindful. I didn't know what I was doing. Everything was, it was just, it was just a chaotic mess. The more I talked, the happier he got. <laughs> At the end of it, he was just beaming. <laughs> and he says, you know, and this is what he said, sometimes when the yogi thinks they're doing really good, the teacher knows, mm, not so good. <laughs> and sometimes when the yogi thinks they're doing really bad, the teacher knows, now they're really doing good. It was such, well, it wasn't easier at that moment, but I believed him. And from that point on, I didn't bother judging my practice. Because what do I know about right practice, good practice? I don't know anything about it at that point. And I was just, just mo- removed the sensors from my mind. Just, I could tell him anything that was going on. No matter what I thought about it, I could tell him. And it is so important to to really have that understanding in your own practice, not to censor your own experience from yourself or from your teacher. Because we don't know the path of practice. And until we see this is the way it is, we won't know. So at this point in practice, even though things were seemingly chaotically out of control, actually what I was seeing was the the speed with which things arise and pass away. And it's not just arising, passing away, arising and passing away. It's like dozens of things in a split second, all of which you can see when your mindfulness is speeded up. At this point, then, all the spiritual goodies arise in, in practice because it's equivalent of, of second jhana. And great bliss, great tranquility, piercing clarity, exuberant confidence, unshakable equanimity, effortless energy, 
all these things arise sometimes together and sometimes individually. And you think, and you will think, now I've got it. This is it. I know this is really it. Now I'm really doing good. And I bet my teacher hasn't even had these experiences. <laughs> and your teacher will tell you that, and, and you'll still believe it. Well, these are what are known as pseudo-Nibbana experiences. They are the spiritual goodies that we've looked for for so long in our struggle. For me, eight years. Tranquility, great. Bliss, better. Equanimity, hmm, okay. Uh, piercing clarity, <laughs> you know, brilliant insight. It's just totally seductive experiences. And we get caught. We get caught. And the teacher will say, just no, just, just, just notice them. Just, just be aware of them. And you say, yeah, I am. I am. <laughs> I am. Upandita used to force me to, ta- to report walking experience when you're totally filled with bliss and you're just kind of like hovering a few feet off the ground. And you say, now, now when, you, when you stepped, what did you notice? And you want to just say, yeah, yeah. It was, it, was so, it was so light. It was so wonderful. He said, no. You, you, what sensations did you notice in your feet and legs? And it's the grounding of your awareness in the actual experience that's important. And until we can really know these experiences as they appear, not what we think about them, not all the exhilaration, not all the opinions we have about them and how good we're doing, but actually how they're experienced and see that these two are just another experience being known. It's just bliss. It's just piercing clarity. It's just exuberant confidence being known. It's just ecstasy being known. It's just... And until you really get to that understanding that it's, these are all just another experience being known. We continue to get stuck. And eventually, you know, all that stuff gets kind of tiring. It gets really kind of tiring. And you know you're stuck. And you try to let go, but it's very difficult. Because we have to somehow let go of our attachment to believing that we're doing so good and stop taking gratification in these experiences and see them as just another impersonally arisen momentary conditioned experience. When we do, when we can, then the insight into arising and passing away matures. And this is the most delightful place in Vipassana practice where the mind is willing to notice anything, everything. It's very panoramic. It notices dozens of things in a split second, all very clear. No hindrances arise. There's no pain in the body. There's just brightness and clarity in the mind. Delightful. But you don't take delight in it. It's just very clear. And it's possible because of increasing equanimity. 
and mature arising and passing away, or the insight knowledge that knows the arising and passing away of phenomena, is matures due to equanimity and the letting go of joy and bliss. Now you're just sitting with one-pointedness and equanimity. No more bliss. Thank goodness. No more joy. Now you just have a lot of equanimity for everything that arises. Unfortunately, when we continue beyond arising and passing away, the next phase of practice is unexpected because we're at the peak of enjoyable Vipassana practice. We're seeing things clearly. We have no reaction. We're not getting caught in the hindrances nor the spiritual goodies. But the pace of mindfulness is picking up all the time. It's just getting faster and faster and faster, noticing more and more and more. And we come to the place in practice where we need to refine our understanding of dukkha. As if all that other dukkha wasn't enough. We now have to refine our understanding of dukkha. And there's a phase in practice called the dukkha jnanas, where we gain a very refined understanding, knowledge, of dukkha. You can imagine what that's like. It is dukkha. And it is so counterintuitive. It's so unexpected that I thought my practice fell apart at the beginning of arising and passing away. Beyond mature arising and passing away, it's worse. It is impossible to feel confident or clear. Everything becomes dispersive. You can't notice anything. You can't remember from one moment to the next what you're doing. And it goes on for a long time. It's very destabilizing. This is the second rolling up the mat phase of practice where without a guide who has been through this stage of practice, you will not continue. You will not. So you want to hope that you have a guide who has been through this when you get there. Because if your teacher then says, oh no, keep going, keep going, but you don't trust them, you, you won't go through. You won't go through. You'll stop, you'll back up, you'll go get another teacher. And if they haven't been through, they'll say, oh no, that's the wrong thing to do. But actually, those who've been through know it's the right thing to do. You have to keep noticing, even though it's impossible. It seems impossible. And, you know, if you persevere in time, you can, you can really open to, and this is what's required, open to and acknowledge and accommodate, accept the truth of dukkha more pervasively in all of your experience. When we do, gradually, we develop more equanimity. We've given up bliss, we've given up joy, we've given up the tranquility, we've given up all those spiritual goodies just to develop equanimity. The, the, the mind that is not reactive to anything. It's not, dis- not disconnected. It's fully aware and fully present with everything, but not caught in reaction to anything. And this, we see, is even much better than ecstasy and much better than bliss. And it is equanimity, when mature, 
that provides the platform or the foundation upon which the mind can access the unconditioned. When you've been through all that and you've reached a, a, uh, an ongoing, a very stable, mature equanimity, in every moment you're seeing what's arising and you're also understanding the three characteristics. You know it's impermanent, you know it's dukkha, you know it's conditioned. So it's like this. Everything that arises, you see. This is its nature and you know it's impermanent. It doesn't last for a split second. The mind doesn't reach to grab that object, to cling to it, to hang on to it, to, to own it, because it knows, the mind knows, it's not, it's, it's not going to be there in the next split second. It's not there. And so the mind doesn't have to let go. The mind doesn't even reach. It just sees this is the way it is. When the mind doesn't reach to grasp anything, it can fall into the unconditioned. It can let go of everything and access Nibbana. Or if the insight into Dukkha is arising, you see this is the object, you know its true nature, and you understand it's painful. Or you understand this is unstable, it doesn't last. Or you understand this is oppressive. And the mind doesn't reach for what it knows is painful. You don't reach for, stick your hand in the fire. Just like you won't reach for anything that you understand is painful or dukkha. The mind won't go there. And when the mind doesn't go there, doesn't even reach, it again can fall into the unconditioned. Through the doorway of insight into dukkha. Or through the insight into the anatta characteristic, the impersonal conditioned nature. When we see in every moment that what is arising has the anatta characteristic. It, there's nothing substantial there. It's just an appearance due to conditions. And the conditions are passing away. And the appearance too is passing away. When you understand this about all your experience, all conditioned things, then you can let go. And when you let go of all conditioned things, your mind arrives at the unconditioned. And the unconditioned is Nibbana. It's not caused by anything. It is a reality. It can be known. When the mind accesses the unconditioned, the defilements, the hindrances, the torments of the mind are gradually uprooted. The first time the mind accesses the unconditioned, certain defilements are uprooted from the mind, no longer to ever appear. Not in this lifetime or not in any other future lifetime. And through progressive uh, stages of awakening or enlightenment and repeated accessing of the unconditioned, we gradually remove all the defilements from the mind the latent defilements that just hang out there waiting for an opportunity to arise. And when they're removed from the mind, they never arise again.
no matter what the conditions are. And suffering comes to an end. This is the path of Vipassana. This is the path of liberation. This is where the heart is released from its gripping of anything. Living in harmony with one another by practicing sila, purifying our speech and behavior, is great. It's helpful. It's a wonderful relief from a lot of suffering. And developing the mind that's pure or free of the obsessive defilements, even for a short period of time, delightful, fantastic, a great companion, a great asset to have in our life. But liberation of mind through the uprooting of the defilements, that's what the Buddha is pointing to. It is available. It's not only for people who lived at the time of the Buddha. It's not only for monks and nuns that live in caves for their whole life. It's for householders, just like us. It takes practice just like you've been practicing. But if you aspire to free the mind from its grip, or from the grip of the defilements, if you aspire to that and you make the effort, it's only a matter of time. It's only a matter of time. No one can stop you. The purpose of my teaching of the holy life of the Dharma is not for merit, nor is it for good deeds, nor is it for rapture, nor is it for concentration, nor is it for insight, but is for the sure heart's release. So let's sit for a moment, let the words settle down. The purpose of my teaching of the holy life of the Dharma is not for merit, nor good deeds, nor rapture, nor concentration, nor insight, but for the sure heart's release.
thank you for listening to the Dhamma. There's uh, 25 minutes for uh, mindful practice, and then we'll be back to sit for the. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.